about it some more as we consider our king and what he has done for us and our response to it. It's great to see you today. Praise the Lord for another day to come and worship the Lord together. I want to invite you to take your Bible today and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter number 20. Matthew, chapter number 20, a special shout out to our worship team and AV team with overcoming some obstacles this morning. Thank you guys and, and girls for working hard to make it happen today. And I'm so appreciative of the hard work these folks put in uh, to uh, making our worship experience uh, delightful each and every week. And so we praise God for you and praise God for the extra work you had to put in today. And I'm th so thankful for that. As you know by now, if you've been here visiting for any length of time, we've been working through the life uh, and ministry of Jesus. Only just a couple of more sermons before we enter into the final week of our Lord's life. Interestingly, as I was thinking back through this this week, the Gospel of John largely turned to, when we get to that final week, uh, records eight of its chapters, which is a 21-chapter book, eight of the chapters are devoted to the final week of Jesus' life. Very significant uh, moment, obviously, the Passion Week, the week he gave his life up. Uh, for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended back to his father. It's an extraordinary study. Uh, and so it's been a joy to look at this together and to uh, study Jesus' life and teachings. And, and so we come back to this, just, just on the edge of moving into Jerusalem for the final time. Jesus, as we've seen the last few weeks, has given parables. He's, he's blessed children. He's, he's had the encounter with the rich young ruler. And so much has happened and now we're going to see yet another extraordinary exchange between Jesus and his disciples and a powerful lesson that we all can learn for our lives. Would you notice Matthew chapter 20 uh, and verse number 20? The Bible says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And be baptized with the baptism that I baptized with. They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup. And be baptized with the baptism that I baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those to whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant." And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. 
Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Amen. This is God's word. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject, true greatness. True greatness. Today, as most of you are well aware, is the anniversary of the 9-11-2001 terrorist attack on the United States of America. It's amazing to meet so many people that when you meet young people in particular, you ask what year they were born in. They say 2003 or 2010 or 2012, and you sadly realize so many will come and so many will grow up having not lived through what you and I so well remember. I was in a seminary class, actually, when they rolled the TVs into the back of the class, and class stopped that day just like the rest of the world did as we watched thousands of people in our country perish. And, and, and every year we remember and we remind ourselves of heroism and quite frankly, what true greatness really looks like. A true greatness was not the fact that there were men and women in that building that had risen to high corporate offices and high corporate jobs. Was it, what was extraordinary was when they laid their corporate titles down, many of them, and put on the hats of heroism and rescued hundreds and hundreds of lives and it could have been far, far worse than it was. I read multiple stories this week, as I seem to do every year, and watch multiple videos. And, and once again was arrested by the story of Wells Crawler. He's, he's become rather famous, actually, uh, as one of the heroes of 9-11. He was uh, a, 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 uh, a trader, a, a stock trader that had, a, had an office on the 104th floor of one of the towers. He was actually on the 78th floor of the South Tower uh, whenever the second plane struck. And, uh, of course, as testimony was given, many people that were on that 78th floor, which is kind of like a, a lobby or an observation area, many people were literally blown into eternity right there without even uh, a chance. And people were waking up shocked and stunned, trying to figure out what was going on, unable to see and and get their bearings. Three of the four stairways were completely incapacitated. Only stairway A was still able to be used. And so Wells uh, Crawler, this man, uh, literally went on a rescue mission. And he was said to have walked through that smoke. And, and what was the thing that notated him? What everybody remember about him is he had a red bandana over his face. And some of you may have seen the story of the man in the red bandana. He covered his face to, uh, to, to stop the, uh, the smoke inhalation and began to take people down. 17 flights of stairs to where he met the firefighters. And the firefighters were able to take the group of people down from the 61st floor. Many of them were rescued. Many of them gave testimony to this later. And then when he sent that group down, he turned around and went right back up the stairs. As so many brave people did that day. As the stories began to unfold and the survivors began to share what happened. They all gave witness to the man that rescued them was a man with a red bandana over his face. And this is what caught the attention of his mom and dad who knew exactly who it was when they heard the story. When, when Wells was six years old, his dad gave him a red bandana 
And all throughout his childhood, he had it with him at all times. Later on, began to be a superstar lacrosse player and took that red bandana and wore it underneath of his helmet. And then he got a Division I scholarship to play lacrosse for Boston College. And after graduating from Boston College in 1999, he moved right back to New York City to take a job on the 104th floor of the South Tower. It was in the witness of these people saying, we didn't really know who he was. All we know is he was tall and he was firm and he was clear and he was setting up triage and helping people and he had a red bandana over his face. Interestingly enough, uh, about six months later, in March of 2002, they actually found his body and verified that that in fact was the man that everybody was talking about. The parents sent pictures to the survivors and they verified that in fact this man with his red bandana that he had since he was a boy was the hero with the red bandana. In 2012, 10 years later, 11 years later, they post homishly uh, uh, made him a New York firefighter in an extraordinary ceremony with his parents and his family and his friends. It's almost hard to narrow down one story when you begin to dig in and look. So many people, in fact, uh, the man, the maintenance manager on the other building, the second building that was hit, uh, literally was responsible for 2,700 people being re removed. When he ignored his, his officer's warning to leave everybody alone, he started going and unlocking emergency staircases, and 2,700 people in the second tower were delivered. This is what made 9-11 such an amazing and extraordinary event. His dad said later, he quoted the scripture in John 15, greater love has no man than this, and a man laid down his life for his friends. This is what made it great. This is actually what true greatness is all about. True greatness is often misunderstood. It's often sought in titles. It's often sought in uh, money or positions. It's sought in social status, and we are reminded here in Scripture that true greatness has nothing to do with how much money you have, with what kind of position that you have, with what you quote-unquote accomplish in this life. But true greatness is measured by what you are willing to give up and what you are willing to lay down for Jesus Christ and the cause of the gospel. And this is widely misunderstood. And that's the first thing that I want you to see in our message today is that true greatness is misunderstood by men. In fact, at the beginning of our text, you got this mother, uh, the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, can I ask? says, what do you want? And, and, uh, and she says, I, I want my boys to be at your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom. Now, mind you, if you were to back up just a few verses to verse 17, Jesus, it says, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed by the, to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him and the third day he will rise again. And these people were with him when he said this. And likely because of the flow of the context, the sons of Zebedee's mother was actually with them when this all took place. And I don't know if she missed the part about scourging and death and crucifixion. If she just zeroed in on the third thing that was going to happen, he was going to rise from the dead the third day. 
But somehow she got it in her mind that Jesus, after he resurrected, was going to take all of his disciples to this kingdom. And these disciples were going to be basically positioned in a spot of greatness around the throne. And that's all that she focused on. And boy, is she getting ready to learn a real serious lesson about what actual greatness is. It's sad to say that, 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 that this woman and these disciples, uh, actually this is not the only time something like this is actually stated or suggested. Even at the Last Supper that's going to happen in just a few days from now. Even at the Last Supper, according to John chapter 13, I believe it is, uh, the disi- or I believe it's Luke's account, these disciples actually at the Last Supper are arguing about which one is going to be the greatest. They obviously did not get this message. These men have been with Jesus for three years. These men have seen the greatness of Jesus, and they still sometimes did not get what Christ really had for them. i got to tell you, you may have been a Christian a long time. You may be a disciple for a long time. But can I tell you, there are oftentimes things in our life that we overlook and that we miss, and that Christ is always in the business of teaching his disciples something. These disciples were completely oblivious to what true greatness was, and, and, and they show and demonstrate that this request by the mother was driven by many things, but it certainly was not driven by Christ himself. For instance, I would say, first of all, this request was ignorance-driven. And notice what Jesus says in response. Jesus answered and said to them, you do not know what you ask. They are asking to be seated at the right hand or the left hand of the throne of God. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. You're asking the wrong thing. You're asking for the wrong reason. It was an ignorant request. We know also it was a world-driven request. Jesus is later going to say in verse number 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over him. Lord what? Lord their lordship over them. The guys that say, I'm in charge here. Do what I say using their position or their platform as, as, a, as an opportunity to push around and dictate to other people what they are supposed to do. Now, there's no doubt that leaders need to lead and leaders need to make decisions, but there is a, a measure or a method by which that can be done. And certainly, uh, uh, people should not use just their position of authority as a place where they, where they exalt themselves and push other people around. And, and the Lord's pointing out to them, he says, you know, verse 25, you know this is true. This is where you've seen this from. This is where you've got this idea from. And can I tell you folks, in the church, in pastoral leadership, in church leadership, those of you that are leading classes and leading children and leading teenagers and leading other departments in the church, we need to remember this. We don't lead from the posture or position as people that do not know Christ lead. We lead from a completely different posture and position. We lead by serving. We do not lead by lording. And so these people were completely confused about what leadership really actually looked like. And then, of course, their request was pride-driven. I mean, by the very fact that they were asking this, and you can see it in the response of the other disciples, there was division that took place because some people were exalting themselves above other people. This is a recipe for disaster. At bottom line is this, many people completely misunderstand and misrepresent what true greatness is. This past week, I was... Uh, watching, maybe some of you did, maybe you don't care, but uh, I watched uh, a little bit of the U.S. Open tennis tournament, and, and mainly because I wanted to watch Serena Williams play what appeared to have been her final uh, match uh, in the U.S. Open. And so, uh, an extraordinary player, 41 years old, and uh, was out there playing her best with, uh, with, with this younger woman, and really just was an extraordinary match. 
And, and of course, all throughout the match, everybody's talking about, there were videos about how great Serena Williams is. And, and arguably, some would say she's the greatest tennis player ever, both male or female. 23 uh, major championships, 23 major championships. She was a fantastic tennis player, to say the least. And at the end of the, the, the match where she lost, uh, the story was of her greatness and her career. And, and we're just laying there crying and listening to her talk about her career. And it was, it was really an extraordinary moment if you happen to be a sports fan. But the very next day on ESPN, there was an article that came out uh, about a woman named Margaret Smith Court. Now, some of you may have no, never heard of her. But Margaret Smith Court was a professional tennis player back in the 70s. And she did not win 23 major titles. She won 24 major titles and did it in seven years less than Serena did hers. You never heard probably of Margaret Court. She is over in Australia. She, she retired when she was 31. This is back in the mid-70s. I mean, that's what, you know, 50 years ago now. And so this, this woman's basically been brushed under the rug. You, you hear very little about her. And there was an article uh, on ESPN.com. You still look it up today. And she, she described how when I was 17 years old, I, I won, I, I began me winning seven consecutive Australian Open titles. She had completed a career Grand Slam, meaning she won all four majors by the time she was 21 when she won Wimbledon in 1963. She actually completed a Grand Slam in a season in 1970 by winning all four major titles in the same season. And she came out with 24 major victories and did it, as I said, before she was even age 31. And, by the way, took two or three years off in between as she had two children. And the last championship she won was after being the mother of two babies. I mean, this was obviously an extraordinary woman. And the interesting thing about the title was the title basically of the article, this woman said she had respect for Serena, but never felt like Serena had the same respect for her. And I felt like as I read the article, I was standing in the middle of a third grade recess playground, two people arguing and bickering back and forth about which one was greater than the other. Could we just all stop for just a second and step back for a minute and just say they obviously were both great tennis players. And when you get involved in this kind of comparison, you get in this, 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 this issue of comparing and your pride begins to make, make you feel like you deserve more and you deserve more recognition or you look at somebody else and begin to look at their accomplishments as they're not as significant as your own. This is the problem with so many people in our world today. They misunderstand what greatness is. They think it's about being recognized. They think it's about their own accomplishments think it's about uh, the, the, the amount of money that they make each year. And Jesus points out to them, this is not how it works. So the second thing Jesus tells us is this. True greatness is measured by sacrifice. True greatness is measured by sacrifice. John MacArthur said these words, I think since about 1974, and I, I've been thinking about this all week, I wonder what happened in 1974 for him to say this, but I think he said since 1974, we've seen a growing cult of selfism beginning to burgeon in the church of Jesus Christ, 
and it needs to be dealt with. And I can attest today to this reality that the church has become little more to people than Walmart. And Walmart is the place where I go get the best service and the cheapest goods and the closest one to my house. But I'm telling you, as soon as they build one closer and as soon as prices go cheaper, my loyalty to that one will not be there at all. And what's happened, guys, we have to admit it, what's happened in our culture is that the church has become a consumer product. The church has become all about me. I hear people say this all the time. Yeah, I went to that church, and this is what they say. I love this statement. It checked all the boxes. What does that mean? It checked all the boxes. All that means to me is I'm going there for me. I'm not going there for Jesus, and I'm not going there for what can be done for the sake of Jesus and for the gospel. We got it all wrong, people. I got to tell you, this isn't about being served. This is about serving God and serving others. I got to tell you, I look around this room, and I'm just, I'm, I'm stunned and marvel at the sacrificial service of so many people in this church that make this church what it is today. That's extraordinary. I, was, I, was, I had a few guests here this week, and, and we, were, we were walking into the, they'd never been in the auditorium before, so I walked in here and I showed them. We, we walked through, the, um, through this hallway right out here, and, and Oren was out there uh, shaping up the lawn and blowing off the property, and, and uh, somebody looked at me and said, is that, do, you guys pay, do you guys pay him to do that? And I said, honestly, no. Oren just showed up and started doing it one day. Owns his own lawn care business, and all of a sudden, I just look around, never even asked him. I just look around, he's cutting grass, he's trimming bushes. I remember the same, I remember when somebody came to me and said, Jim McAllister's just changed all the lights in the uh, outside of the church building. I'm just going, well, I, I mean, I don't even remember anybody saying anything about that. Nobody needed to say anything about that. Because it's about serving, it's about, it's about doing what needs to be done, it's about the church of Jesus Christ being a place where we sacrifice our time, our energy, our resources for the kingdom of God, for the work of Jesus Christ, and we don't get that today. And, and Jesus is going to point out to these people that you've totally misunderstood what greatness is, and he's going to point out to them two things that greatness includes for everybody. Are you ready? Number one, he says, greatness includes drinking from the same cup that Jesus is about to drink from. Now, you may have noticed that. And you may be like, what in the world is he talking about? Verse number 22, you do not know what you ask you're wanting to go to the kingdom. You're wanting to be a leader. You're wanting to set on a position of authority. And he says, but here's what you don't understand. Are you ready to drink the cup that I'm about to drink of? Now, if you study the, the rest of the story, you know what Jesus is talking about here. Because when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane in an all-night prayer meeting with his heavenly father, isn't this what he asked Jesus or his father? Father? If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup? The cup was his own death. It was drinking, watch it, drinking from the dregs of the wrath of God. That's what it was. He was getting ready to gulp down a giant swig of God's wrath. He was getting ready to ingest all the torturous suffering 
Is anybody listening to me this morning? He was getting ready to ingest the torturous suffering of God. He was getting ready to ingest the full wrath of God in his own body. Come on. For sins he did not commit. For crimes that you and I committed. And every single person sins. Every single one of them stands under the wrath of God. And on Calvary, come on. On Calvary, what Jesus did is he drank all that up for you so that you'd never have to drink it yourself. You want to reign with me? You ready to drink what I'm dishing out? Folks, this is not like, sometimes we look at this and go, suffering Christians or, or sacrificial Christians, we often look at them as like special Christians that we should be writing books about, and, and I'm not demeaning that at all, but, but listen to me, I, I'm telling you today that sacrificial and suffering Christians are not the fine print, they are the headlines. I mean, isn't this what Jesus told Saul? Saul just got saved. And here's what he says, Ananias, I want you to go find Saul. He's hiding right now. And here's what I want you to tell him. I want you to go minister to him. Listen to this. And I want you to tell him how great things he will suffer for my name. This wasn't in the fine print. This was on the front page. This was headline. You follow me, you're going to suffer. You follow me, you're going to sacrifice. You follow me, it's going to cost you. Isn't this what he said to all of us? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And oftentimes, we look at suffering, we look at the struggle as a sign of God's disapproval. I'm here to tell you, I am telling you that I think the suffering and the struggle and the sacrifice is actually a token of his actual approval. Isn't this what Paul said later? I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. We all want the power of the resurrection, but we don't want conformity to his death and so instead of looking at suffering and struggle and sacrifice as woe is me we should be looking at it as what a privilege he says you're going to suffer but then he says this this is even more encouraging those who follow Jesus will also become slaves those who follow Jesus will become slaves now, this is probably not what you went to college for. This is probably not what you signed up for. This is probably not what you were looking at. The objective of my life was to be a slave. No, in fact, uh, uh, there's various slaves in the Bible. One, one would be a bond slave, a bond servant, meaning in debt to work off a debt. That was the kind of slave in the Bible. Uh, and, and it wasn't like it was a, uh, uh, always a position that was bad. Sometimes it was actually sought after. If you read the Old Testament, sometimes when they had the opportunity to be released, some slaves would say, I love my master. I want to stay. So the point is not necessarily, watch this, the point of being a slave of Christ is not necessarily directly tied to the hardship. It is directly tied to ownership. Ownership. And I'm here to say to you today that the true mark of someone that knows Jesus Christ is that they fully embrace the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Church, he is the master of the universe. He is the head of the church. And those who follow him are not even the ones in charge in the first place. 
You know, I almost hate it when people say, how's your church doing? I want to be, I want to shoot right back and say, it's not my church. It's his church. You're his child. You're his slave. You're his servant. You're, you're his follower. You're his disciple. And i got to tell you, when I look at my own life sometimes, and I look at the lives of people who, quote, unquote, follow Jesus, I'm, I'm reminded of the poem that so many years ago Amy Carmichael wrote, the famous single missionary uh, to India, I believe. She wrote this poem, and here's the title, Hast Thou No Scar? Hast Thou No Scar? No hidden scar on foot, side, or hand. I hear you sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail you as a bride ascending star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archer spent. Lean me against a tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that compass me. I swoon. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet, watch this, as the master so shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. Let me ask you a question today. Why are you here? Why are you here? What got you out of bed today to come to church? I hope it wasn't routine and ritual and I have to. I hope it was, I'm a bond slave. But I'm not talking about a drudgery. I'm talking about I'm, I'm yoked up with the greatest master in the world. And so being his servant is actually a joy. And when I give my time, I give my research, I give my energy to him. I want to do it. I get to do it. It's a joy to do it. True greatness is measured by sacrifice, which leads me to the final thing, and I love this. Then he caps it off in verse number 28 and says, true, true greatness is modeled by our Savior. True greatness is modeled by our Savior. Verse number 28 starts with this phrase, uh, uh, just as the Son of Man. And I, I, boy, you got to appreciate this about our Lord, don't you? you got to appreciate the fact that he's telling you what this life is going to look like, this sacrificial life, this, this challenging life. And then he's going to say, hey, listen, I'm not asking you to walk somewhere that I haven't walked before. Just as the Son of Man came not, as he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, true greatness was modeled by Jesus. And I think Philippians chapter 2 is the greatest picture of all of it. When in Philippians chapter number 2, it starts off by challenging the church. If any of you have the same mindset, if any of you share the, the testimony of Christ, if any of you share the fellowship of the Spirit, let every man look not on his own things but also in the things of others. And then he says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who, being in the form of God, or you might say the greatest position of the universe, God himself, he was in the form of God, he was God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be made equal with God. In other words, it wasn't taking anything away from God by me saying that I'm God, because he's God. But made himself, here's the key, but made himself of no reputation, 
and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Then, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's greatness. Wherefore, verse 9, God also hath highly exalted him and given him, Jesus, a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He demonstrates to us once for all that humility led to that greatness, that the sacrifice on the cross led to the crown, that this was the divine order of how God redeemed us. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 20 and verse number 28. You want to know how this works? Look at Calvary. Look at the cross. Look at that bloody death. Come on. Look at that uh, uh, empty tomb. Look at my resurrection. Look at how I descended, Ephesians 4, to the lower parts of the earth. And then I ascended again back to my Father. This is the story, friend. It's the gospel story. Jesus came and laid it all down so that you and I could be included. If you're here today and you do not know Christ... Here's what I want to tell you. The only way you've got a chance to be included in God's family is because Jesus made that way possible. By identifying with you and your humanity, living the life in humanity that you could never live as the perfect son of God. And then in his body, took all your sins and, and had them placed literally, 2 Corinthians 5, in his body. And then while he had your sins in his body, somebody help me, while he had your sins in his body, the God of the universe dumped out all of his wrath on Jesus so that your sins could be paid for at the cross. Because God treated his only begotten son like you deserve to be treated so that later on he could treat you like Jesus deserved to be treated. I got to give credit to Aaron for sending me this this week and... I'm sure he'll be using it as a pastor someday soon, but this is a fascinating story from the Queen Elizabeth stories that all of us have been hearing over the last couple of days. Of course, Her Majesty Queen of England passed away this week in her 90s, and uh, there's been so much said about her greatness and her relationship with God and so many other things, but a pastor on social media was able to have some interviews with people on the inside of her kingdom, people that had actually been with her, people that knew her. And he said, I pretty much can summarize who Queen Elizabeth was by sharing with you this story. So pardon me and let me read it to you because it's really neat. He said, I quote, Every legislative session begins with a visit from the queen. And it is a very regal tradition. She wears her crown, her robe, and she processes down a hallway lined with the queen's guards who literally strike the stone walls with their swords and sparks fly out as she walks through. At the end of the hallway <clears throat> is the House of Lords, 
where the queen enters to take her seat on the throne and essentially commissions the legislators to enact the will of the people. Several years ago, they were forced to break tradition a bit to accommodate the queen in her older age. There is a grand staircase that leads to the hallway and it became too much for her in her older years. And so they decided to start using an elevator to get her from that hallway up to the legislative session. The very first year this happened, the lift operator accidentally pushed the wrong floor. Rather than the entrance Rather than the entrance to Parliament, he pressed the button for the maintenance floor. And the lift goes up and the doors open. And Alice from the cleaning crew with her cart sees the door open and quickly pushes her cart in and pins the Queen of England against the wall. The doors close behind her. Alice is stuck in the lift with the queen and her guard. Alice is so frightened that she lets out an explicative. <laughs> Not fitting for the presence of royalty. Which of course led to a moment of awkward silence with nobody sure of what to do. The silence was broken by the queen's uncontrollable laughter. And then she issued the most Y'all help me, I'm just glad I'm saved <laughs> Then the most remarkable Invitation was given Rather than asking the operator to let them down to the proper floor And dismiss Alice to where she needed to go She told the operator to take them to the legislative floor. The doors open and to everyone's shock, out walks the queen and Alice, the maintenance worker. The queen in all her regalia, along with Alice in her maintenance uniform, stroll side by side down the royal hallway. But it gets better. Once a year for the rest of Alice's life, she was invited to the Queen's for tea with her newfound friend, the Queen of England. That is it. You want to know what happened to you when I got saved? I'll tell you what happened to you when you got saved. You had no business being in the same room with the God of the universe. But grace let you in the elevator. And it didn't stop there. Grace pranced you around as if you were the best friend you've ever had. 
And for the rest of your life, you get a friend that sticks closer than a brother through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you, we don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be there, but I'm glad to have a seat at the king's table through the Lord Jesus Christ. One that everybody can have through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you care about us. And thank you that you brought us into your kingdom. No acts of our own. No, no worth of our own. But Lord, today we get to walk hand in hand with the King of Kings. One day soon we will be in your presence forever. Strolling through heaven as if we deserve to be there. Best friends with the King. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us to live the sacrificial and suffering life that you've called us to. Joyfully, willfully, passionately. God, there are so many new people here and there's so many things going on. Help us all to get all in. Help us to find that smallest place of service and gladly. Get involved with it because we're doing it for the king. So thank you for speaking to our hearts today. I wonder if there's someone here that would say, preacher, hey, look, I do not know Jesus is my personal savior. I do not know if I'm going to heaven when I die, but I, boy, I want to know that. He gave his life for me, and I want to know what that means. I don't know him. I've never accepted him. I may go to church. I may have never been to church. I may... Know some things about the Bible, may know nothing about the Bible, but this I know. I do not have the certain knowledge that my sins have been forgiven. I do not have the certain knowledge that I'm on my way to heaven, and I'd like you to pray for me, preacher. I'd like you to pray for me. Is there anybody like that today? Would you slip your hand up, and then just lower it right back down. Anybody like that today? Preacher, I don't know that, but I'd like to know that. I don't know that, but I'd like to know that. I wonder how many of you would say, preacher, God spoke to me, I... I Maybe my service, my ministry, my involvement maybe has been obligatory and maybe even spotty or non-existent because I just haven't been viewing this right. But I needed to see today that it's a privilege. It's a privilege. It's a joy to be yoked up with the right master. And I'm his servant. I want God to help me serve him. And his people, because he so lavishly served me. How many of you say God spoke to me about that? Would you lift your hand and say, man, God spoke to me about that. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand to our feet. I'm going to have a worship team come. Before they sing, <clears throat> I got some exciting stuff for you today. And I want Hector, Hector and Cheryl and uh, Brianna, I want you guys to come first. We're gonna have a we're gonna have some prayer time here today, but I, I just I wanted to do this during the invitation today. <clears throat> Go ahead and come up here, Hector. Uh, many of you have been praying with me for um, some time, over a year, that God would God would bring us the Spanish pastor, and that we would be able to reach this amazingly growing population in our community. 
I went to Walmart the other day, and I, 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 I stuck a timer on my watch. I know I'm stupid, but I, I, I stuck a timer on my watch for 10 minutes, and I counted 49 Spanish speakers in 10 minutes, 49. Trying to incognito, take photos, and kept sending them over to Hector. But a year ago, I asked Hector if he would consider coming. And we've been friends for a long time. I've, I've known him for a decade. I preached at their church in Texas City, Texas for years before he was even there. The first time I met Hector, he, he had just moved from Iowa to Texas City to start a Spanish church. And when I, the first day I met him, he moved to this city he didn't know anybody and he was working at CarMax but he, he did that just to start a church where there was no Spanish church and that'd be the third Spanish church he'd be involved with here in the, in the states and for the last seven years he's been the lead pastor of Trinity Baptist Church in Texas City Texas a great church and God's used him and at first I I said Hey man, it was, it was almost like, it was kind of funny, it was like a after service, I was in a revival meeting there, it was like after the service, sitting at his house, drinking coffee, and it was like, hey man, let's go, let's do a Spanish church, let's go. And, and it was a good conversation. Shortly thereafter, there were, there were some big prayer requests that he had, and that God didn't answer. And so, over the last like six or seven months, we just shut it down. And then... In the last like four or five weeks, man, I tell you, God started working some things out. Started with, with their son David. God really got a hold of his heart and sent him to Bible college over in Pensacola, Florida. And, and that was one of the huge prayer requests because they were concerned he was going to go to a community college there in Texas City. And they didn't want to leave him behind. That was one. And then there were some things that they were specifically praying about as a family. They just hadn't gum yet. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the wheels broke loose. And before... Before you know it, he called me back and said, man, I, I think God's in it. A year of prayer, a year of consideration. And just this past Wednesday, he resigned uh, at Trinity Baptist Church. And, and effective January 1st, uh, we're going to start him here as the Spanish pastor at River City Baptist Church. Let's, let's welcome Hector and Cheryl and Brianna. That's their daughter, and I'm super excited about them coming. And, and in, spirit, in the spirit of this message, uh, you can keep playing if you want, that's fine. In the spirit of this message, I want to I I do one other thing, because I think this is so important. Y'all just got to bear with me, okay? Just bear with me. I want uh, Mark and Lacey and Tito and Maddie, you guys come up here too. I want, I, this, this part of the story is, I mean, I don't know what's the best part. It's like I got favorite ice cream flavors. Like cookies and cream's awesome, but man, cookie dough's awesome, and vanilla's awesome, and whatever is awesome. So, so Mark, and Mark is a deacon at Trinity Baptist Church in Texas City. Grew up there. Lacey's his wife. They have four kids. They they're all from there. They've been there for years. It's their home church. This is Hector, uh, the third technically with Tito, and this is wife Maddie. This is Hector's son. And when we started talking about this, Hector. The third was like, man, I'm not, I'm from Texas City, I'm staying here, and this is where God wants me, and, and um, started praying about some things, and God, God started working in their hearts, and, uh, and, and Hector started putting out job feelers and so on and so forth, and Hector got a job here in Jacksonville, Hector's going to be moving also, 
partner up with our ministry. And then this is even, this is even, this is even like a little bit cooler, if, if there is a cooler part. So we sent out the email about the Mayport Church out to friends. And, and so Hector sh shared it, I guess, with Mark. And, and I've been friends with them for a long time. And Mark, Mark started getting stirred up about not only Mayport, but just what God was doing at River City. At the same time, they were, they were planning this trip, this trip this week, which is a mission week for them. They came here to serve us this week at, at the Mayport campus. They, they came from their church to do that. And as Lacey and Mark separately were thinking about what they were going to do, God was speaking to them both individually that they were actually going to sell out their homes and their lives to move to Jacksonville. Does anybody listen to me? I was just curious if you're hearing what I'm saying. And so, but Lacey, Lacey was saying, I, I'm, I'm not going to say a thing. I, 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 if God's in it, man, Mark's going to have to, you know, it's going to have to be Mark. Well, then Mark's over here. And, and this is the most interesting thing about it. They're praying about this whole thing, and they don't even know that Hector's leaving. It just all happened separately. And then finally one night, Mark just said, man, I got I to gotta tell everybody. So he pulls everybody together, all of them, and says, man, I, I'm convinced that God wants me to move to Jacksonville, help River City Baptist Church, help the Mayport campus, help out wherever I can. And then Lacey's like, oh, my goodness, I've been waiting on you. You know, this kind of thing. I mean, isn't this extraordinary? This is extraordinary. I mean, this is what God's doing, people. I'm talking about God working in people's lives because so much is happening. We're getting ready to plant two churches at the same time. Two churches. You know one of the things I said? One of the things I said was, God, I don't have enough people and I don't have enough money to do this. But we're going to march forward. And look what God's doing. Somebody help me up here. Look what God's doing. He's bringing, he's bringing people and he's bringing resources together for the gospel's sake. For the gospel's sake. And, and I just, my challenge is simply this. Those people ready to uproot their lives and go help and do what God wants them to do. I think, I think all of us should be able to let it be disturbed a little bit. It can be disturbed a little bit. To see a church planted, to see a Spanish church planted. It's exciting. And so during this invitation, we're going to worship, we're going to pray. You might want to commit some things to the Lord. But I'm going to invite, I want, I want y'all to come and I want y'all to pray with these people and greet them. And let's have a family time here today. As we, as we knit our hearts together for what's coming. What's come, we're going to do that, amen. It's going to be exciting. And I hope you'll come and I hope you'll pray with them and hug their necks and thank them for coming and thank them for being a part of what God's doing. And so I'm going to pray and, and, and we're going to worship, we're going to pray, we're going to greet, and we're just going to let God have his way. Okay? Lord, I pray your blessing on this invitation. Lord, I pray that if folks would see the joy and sacrifice of Christian community. I pray that we would all experience a challenge from your word. And I pray that we will leave here determined to serve you and to partner in a greater way for the kingdom. And I thank you that you provided River City with this family, these families. God, what great things you must have in store for this church. This is going to be an exciting year. Thank you for bringing them to us. And Lord, I thank you for how you moved mountains to make this happen. We praise you. We give you the glory. You are the king.
You are the king of all kings. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And Lord, we can plan, we can, we can scheme and dream, but at the end of the day, Lord, you do it. You are the one that moves it and you do it. And so now, we pray our hearts will be knit together as we move forward for the sake of the gospel, both in Mayport and in the Spanish community of Arlington. Lord, use us as our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing that song together.